Some of you may recall, uh, with the fondness that I do, the interview which I conducted with best-selling author James Swanson, who has written a host of different books about the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln, including his blockbuster bestseller, Manhunt, which uh, told the story of the uh, pursuit of Abraham Lincoln's killer, John Wilkes Booth. His latest book is called Bloody Crimes, The Chase for Jefferson Davis and the Death Pageant for Lincoln's Corpse. As you probably can gather from that uh, subtitle, there are a couple of different stories woven together here, but of course they both occur at the very, very end of the war between the states and in a couple of different ways say something very important and meaningful about the state of affairs of our nation uh, as it tried to uh, weave itself back together in the wake of that terrible, a bloody conflict. And uh, I'm so excited about the opportunity to speak once again with James Swanson. Again, his most recent book, Bloody Crimes, The Chase for Jefferson Davis and the Death Pageant for Lincoln's Corpse, is published by William Morrow. James Swanson, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me back. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be speaking with you. Uh, I unfortunately do not have a copy of the book yet, but uh, I have had a chance to read about it and actually to see uh, a little bit of uh, the inside of the book, uh, including the first pages, which began uh, with an image that I did not particularly expect, uh, an image of a particular graveside. Can you tell us about uh, this first image we read about in your book and why your book begins there? Yes. In fact, my visit to that grave is what inspired me to think of doing this book. When I was writing Manhunt, I didn't anticipate that I was going to do a sequel. Uh, I thought I'd certainly thoroughly told the story of the assassination of Lincoln and then that thrilling 12-day chase for John Wilkes Booth. But there's a place that I like to visit in Washington, D.C., in Georgetown, at Oak Hill Cemetery. And this is where my book begins, in, in kind of an epilogue. There is a tomb there, located in a far corner of the cemetery. And unless you know it's there, you'd never know to find it. You have to descend these old slate stone steps and walk down towards Rock Creek. And there is a burial vault. And it's in that tomb where Abraham Lincoln's son, Willie, was laid to rest in 1862. Now, there's no name carved there because the tomb belonged to someone else. He was loaning it to Lincoln to place his boy there. And there's no sign that he was ever there. After Willie died, Lincoln would come there and visit and mourn him. And throughout Lincoln's presidency, from 1862 until his own death, he was haunted by the memory of his favorite son who had died in his White House. And it was Lincoln's plan in March 1869, when Lincoln would finish his second term of president, to reclaim his boy's body from that tomb and take it back home with him on the long railroad journey to Illinois. But of course, Lincoln's assassination prevented him from doing that. And so, on that funeral train, that amazing journey that took Lincoln back 1,600 miles to Illinois with stops along the way for millions of people to view his body, Willie's coffin went home with his father side by side in this railroad car. And there was something so haunting to me about standing in the very spot where Abraham Lincoln once stood in this remote corner of a forgotten cemetery where he came come to visit his dead son. And something about that image 
spoke to me about all the loss of the Civil War, what Lincoln had suffered, the amazing assassination and chase for Booth, and then the, the amazing funeral journey of Abraham Lincoln. That's why I call it the death pageant, not the funeral, because this was a morbid, mournful, and patriotic pageant that remembered the dead president and really made him into an American hero. Lincoln left Washington in that railroad train as a man, and the strange and mysterious things that happened along the way made him an American hero and myth by the time that train got his body home to Springfield 20 days later. Something else you talk about in that prologue is Lincoln's house. I don't think you mean the house back in Illinois, but uh, a house in Richmond, Virginia. Am I right about yes. that? Well, I, I speak of Jefferson Davis's home, oh, Jefferson the Davis. White House of the Confederacy. And what happened was this. I begin the book with both men, each in, in their capital cities. So I go from the tomb of Willie Lincoln to Jefferson Davis's White House, where it's April 1865. The war is going badly for the South. Davis is spending his last night in his White House where, just like Lincoln, a son of his died in that house. That boy is buried in a local cemetery in Richmond, and Davis is going to have to leave him behind as he flees the city to escape from Union troops, because General Lee has warned him that morning when Davis was in church, I cannot keep the Yankees out of Richmond anymore. If I don't move my army, it'll be destroyed. And so Davis packs up and prepares to leave his White House knowing he'll probably never be able to return. And he's going to have to leave behind in that cemetery, in that grave, his son, too. And there's something about those paired images of the sadnesses that Lincoln and Davis suffered, their sons who had died, that just moved me to do this book, because Manhunt is really one-third of a great trilogy at the end of the Civil War. First, there's the assassination and the amazing chase for Booth. But then there's Davis fleeing Richmond, and this incredible, thrilling six-week chase for him as he tries to keep the Civil War going and save the South. And he's on his final journey after his fall from power. And Abraham Lincoln, who has fallen from power through assassination, is on his final journey. And, and the image of these two presidents on the move, on their last trips, north and south, was so evocative, I decided I really had to write the sequel to Manhunt and mm. tell these stories. We're speaking with James Swanson. We are talking about his new book, Bloody Crimes, The Chase for Jefferson Davis, and The Death Pageant for Lincoln's Corpse. Uh, w one thing your book reminds us of, which uh, is, in, in, in some respects, not, not the most significant of facts within the context of this story, and yet it does make some difference, and in particular, uh, it makes some difference in the way the story of Jefferson Davis played out, uh, that is, the, the, the final chapter of his presidency, is the proximity of Richmond to Washington, D.C., the proximity of these two capitals. And you tell us that at this point in early April 1865, Richmond still stood proud and uh, uh, uninvaded by any troops from the north at all. But, of course, uh, that situation was about to change. Tell us more about the state of affairs uh, in the Confederacy and, in particular, in its uh, capital uh, at this moment in early April 1865. Yes, well, uh, one of the amazing things is while many distant Confederate cities have been captured, like New Orleans, 
and other places. Richmond, though it was less than 100 miles from Washington, had defied capture or invasion for four years. Robert E. Lee, the Army of Northern Virginia, and other Confederate forces had kept the Union Army from ever invading or capturing Richmond, which was one of the great goals of the North. And so it's amazing to think that Lincoln and Davis, who, by the way, were born in log cabins in Kentucky, less than 100 miles apart, less than one year apart, ended up in their final days living uh, less than 100 miles apart in Washington, D.C. and Richmond, uh, laying their heads on their pillows each night thinking how to destroy each other's country. Uh, Richmond had seen some of the signs of war. There, there had been uh, hunger in Richmond, food had been scarce, but no enemy shells had ever fallen in the city. And the idea that the cities were so close, the presidents were so close geographically, that it took 620,000 lives lost for Lincoln and his army to reach Richmond, of such a small distance, but such a, a, a symbolic difference. And Richmond was when Davis had to flee the city the night of April 2nd. And then even worse, the city caught fire when the Confederates tried to destroy, destroy supplies they didn't want the Union Army to capture. And so central Richmond burst into flames the night of April 2nd. And then just a day and a half later, Abraham Lincoln entered the city in triumph with just a few guards, with his son, Tad. It was the most dangerous situation that an American president had ever set foot on. Lincoln himself later said, I am surprised that no one tried to kill me when I walked through Richmond. <laughs> Slaves gathered, they fell at his feet, they, they danced, they sang, they worshipped him. And then Abraham Lincoln walked to the Confederate White House, and he sat in Jefferson Davis's chair in Davis's study. It, it's one of the most remarkable images in American history. Right. Speaking of remarkable images, uh, you tell us in this chapter about the incredibly dramatic moment when uh, Jefferson Davis receives the news. I, do we call it a telegram? I guess we do back then, but receives yeah. the news, the, uh, the the disheartening news, to say the least, about uh, uh, General Lee's uh, reversals and the close proximity of the Union Army. It reminds us, too, that for as much as uh, they attempted to to stay in close touch. This is another era uh, when you know, one could receive a telegram and the news could be so grim and, in some respects at least, sort of unexpected. Yes. Once Davis fled Richmond, he and Lee could no longer communicate in anything close to real time. Uh, for several days after Davis left Richmond, he didn't know exactly what Lee was doing or where he was or what his plan was. Davis was hoping that Lee would move south, reunite with him, that go to the southern interior, link up with other Confederate armies in North Carolina, and live to fight another day. But Davis didn't know that Lee had surrendered or was planning to until it actually happened. Mm. Similarly, while Lincoln was shot on April 14th and died on April 15th, it was not until April 19th, when Davis arrived in Charlotte, North Carolina, that he learned that Lincoln had even been assassinated days later. And, of course, that was important news for Davis to learn, because uh, when Lincoln was alive, Lincoln had little interest in having Davis captured, tried, or punished. He wanted to bring the country together, and he thought he should just let the Confederate leaders escape and disappear. But once Lincoln had been killed, the North assumed that Davis had plotted his murder, and it made things very dangerous for Jefferson Davis. 
if he had learned in real time that Lincoln had been killed, he would have expedited his escape and moved even quicker into the Deep South to avoid capture or death. But it took days for him to even learn that his foe had been murdered. Hmm. Uh, Tell our listeners about this dramatic moment when Jefferson Davis receives this word uh, on this Sunday morning uh, about, uh, in a sense, the, 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 the terrible peril which Richmond suddenly faced. Well, uh, Davis suspected Richmond might have to be abandoned at some point. The Union forces were so overwhelming. But he was hoping it would not come so soon. And so that Sunday morning, he went to church, as always. The city was calm and quiet, and the beautiful spring was just beginning. And a messenger arrived at the church during the sermon and walked to the front pew where Davis sat and handed him a piece of paper. Now, everyone in the church looked at that and wondered what it meant. They had seen important war messages come to Davis before in church, but they knew how the war was going. They knew they were in great peril, and many people in church that day feared what that message might contain. So Davis read it in silence, and some of the witnesses close to him in the church said that they saw his face turn white when he read this telegram, because he knew it was over. Mm. And without a word, he got up and left the church and went to his presidential office and began to plan the evacuation of Richmond. I can only imagine what it must have been like to be one of the several hundred people in that church and see a man holding a little piece of paper that would soon reveal what their fate was going to be that night. It's incredible that within 12 hours of that telegram arriving at the church, Richmond was in flames, and mobs were running wild in the streets. Incredible. Uh, To... Uh, To what location did the government flee? They got aboard a train, and they took it 140 miles southwest to Danville, Virginia, where Davis decided to set up the new capital of the Confederate States. He wasn't on this headlong wild rush just to save his life and get away and, and, and escape to a foreign country. He viewed this as an orderly retreat. He took the whole cabinet with him. He took trunkfuls of documents and archives to keep the Confederate going, to administer the, the, the business of the nation. It was an ordered retreat, uh, somewhat chaotic, but Davis was retreating as the president, not as a fugitive, because he wanted to continue fighting the war. He mm. thought he could do it from North Carolina, go deeper, cross the Mississippi River West into Texas, link up con- with Confederate armies there. He had a plan to keep fighting and fighting until not a single man was left. Hmm. You tell us that it was a tremendously frustrating time because with no word at all for days from General Lee, there was little that the Confederate government could do, and of course uh, more and more they fell into despondency over uh, what what their future uh, ultimately was going to be. Uh, Tell us ultimately what sets... Jefferson Davis off on what amounts to uh, a desperate uh, flee for his life. Yes, well, he began with the cabinet with an escort of several thousand troops to protect him. And day by day, people peeled off. The escort got smaller and smaller. One by one, members of the cabinet thought of different reasons why they had to leave the Davis train. And then the news got worse and worse. Davis thought, well, Lee has surrendered, but I still have the army of General Joe Johnston in North Carolina. I'll link up with him. Well, on April 26th, 
Joe Johnston surrendered his army without Davis's permission, really contrary to Davis's orders. Davis was furious. He was counting so much on that army to keep fighting the war. Now, there is no principal Confederate army left east of the Mississippi River. Davis continued south from Virginia through North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and the news kept getting worse and worse, and his escort kept getting smaller and smaller, until at one point, uh, he said, we have to keep fighting, and the generals and colonels escorting him with their cavalry troops said, we're not going to fight anymore. And Davis said, why are you with me then? And they said, to save your life, to prevent the Union from capturing and killing you. The war is over. We won't fight anymore to fight and win the war, but we will fight to the death to save your life. You have got to get on a horse with a small number of men and ride south as fast as you can. Ultimately, Davis realized that all was lost, and the only thing left to him was to try to save his life. And that that's when uh, he went into Georgia. And ultimately, after six weeks of hunting for him, Union soldiers uh, chased down Davis and captured him before dawn on May 10, 1865. An amazing story. Uh, tell us what resources you were able to turn to in, in order to share such rich details about this incredible odyssey of Jefferson Davis. Well, when I do a book, I like to bring fresh new material to a reader, because so much has been written about the Civil War and about Lincoln that I really don't want to tell just the same old stories that, that people might know. And so I, I go through hundreds of Civil War newspapers, diaries, letters, trial transcripts, and look at original artifacts, photographs, prints, the personal possessions of people who were involved in the story, to really bring it alive. Because what I try to do is go back in time and make the reader feel like they're coming back in time with me. And the only way I can do that is to use all of these original materials and, and bring light on a number of little-known or unknown people whose stories haven't been fully told before. For example, Richmond, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. are almost like characters in my book. And the way I do that is I look at some memoirs of people who were living there at the time of the Civil War and, and tell what they saw through their eyes. And many of these people have not been heard of in the last 150 years. So that's something new and fresh that I hope I bring to the telling of the story. Hmm. Uh of course, the other great story here, I mean, tragic story, is that of the assassination of Lincoln. And, of course, uh, you have written about that before. One remarkable little detail you share with us uh, about the night that Lincoln dies is you tell us the story of the, the single photograph that was taken of that room in which Lincoln died. And you point out something very poignant about uh, the person who, who snapped that photograph, uh, a photograph which uh, someone else might have taken for the purpose of trying to exploit it commercially. But you tell us there is absolutely no evidence that the man who took this photograph ever did any such thing with it to, to exploit this tragic image. Yes. Well, Lincoln died Saturday morning, April 15th. And within less than an hour of his body being removed from the Peterson house across the street from Ford Theater. The room was in disarray. The bloody pillows and pillowcases were still on the bed. The bloody sheets still covered the mattress. The quilt that covered Lincoln's dying body was crumpled in a corner on the bed. 
one of the members of this household, it was a boarding house, and he rented rooms, was a photographer and artist. And he brought his camera into the death chamber, which was now empty, and he aimed the photograph or the lens at the deathbed, capturing the blood and, and the horrific imagery. And I reproduce it in the book, and I think it's one of the saddest and most haunting photographs in American history. And it was lost for almost a century until it was rediscovered. There's no evidence that he tried to make multiple copies, sell it as a souvenir, although it would have sold well. And I've, I've rarely seen a historical photograph so evocative that sums up so much of the story as when you look at this photograph of the empty bed on which Abraham Lincoln has just died. It, it, it places us in that room on that night in a way that in some respects nothing else can. Yes, when I look at that photograph, I think I'm there. The whole story just pours out when I stare at that photograph. Absolutely. Of course, what ensues is, is tremendous national mourning, uh, such as our country had really not ever experienced. Uh, although one president had died while in office, William Henry Harrison uh, never had, a, had a, I guess Zachary Taylor too, but never had yeah. a president been cut down by an assassin uh, and at such a, an important moment uh, in, in our history. Uh, tell us uh, what is most remarkable about this long, tragic processional that uh, ultimately brings Lincoln's body back to his home state of Illinois. Well, a few things. First, it was the most emotional, staged, planned public event in American history. And it was really the emotional close of the Civil War for the North. Because not only did Lincoln have this amazing funeral in the White House and a funeral procession down Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol Dome where he lay in state, he was put aboard this train, which recreated his train journey from four years earlier when he left Illinois and traveled through the North as president-elect on his way to Washington. Those cities wrote telegrams and sent representatives to Washington begging that Lincoln be sent home their way so they could see him again. And so it was decided that the train wouldn't go straight back to Springfield as quickly as possible. It would go on a leisurely journey so that Lincoln would be unburied for 20 days as the train stopped in Baltimore, in, Trent, in Philadelphia, in Trenton, New Jersey, in New York City, Buffalo, and Albany, New York, and then the train would turn west to Ohio and go through Cleveland, Columbus, Indianapolis, Indiana, Chicago, and then to Springfield. And and the the unprecedented thing was that in each of these cities, the coffin was removed from the train and taken to a major place, and then the coffin was opened. And so for 20 days, people viewed Lincoln's decomposing corpse. One million people viewed the body. 100,000 children viewed Lincoln in death. Seven million people watched the train pass by as they held up signs and banners and torchlights. It was emotional because the people felt that on that train, it just wasn't Abraham Lincoln coming home from the war. They felt it was every man lost in the war because so many men were buried in anonymous graves or their bodies were never sent home to their family. So in a way, the Lincoln funeral train symbolized every man lost in that war, every brother, every husband, every son. And that's why it had the incredible emotional impact. It's almost impossible to imagine today 
what it must have been like. Uh, think of the funeral of President John F. Kennedy. Or think of the great emotional outpouring that occurred after 9-11. And you'll get some sense of what it must have been like to be alive in America at the end of the Civil War and witness the funeral pageant for Abraham Lincoln and look upon him in death. Today, it would be like 10 million people would view a dead president, and 70 million would watch his train pass. That, that's how it would be with the population today. It was a staggering event. One thing you point out I find striking is that Lincoln was, uh, was given a coffin that was incredibly splendid. You say it cost more than his house back in Springfield. Uh, and it is the kind of coffin he would never have chosen for himself. Um, no. W- would, have, would Lincoln have chosen, well, much of anything in terms of, of how this last chapter played out? I don't mean, of course, the way his life ended, but the way this morning took place uh, all across the country. Uh, is it possible for us to surmise what Lincoln would have thought of this. I mean, in a yeah. sense, did it, did it align with who he was and what was important to him? No, I think Lincoln would have been mortified and embarrassed at the grandness of these tributes. And you mentioned the coffin. Now, Lincoln was brought back from the Peterson House to the White House in a pine ammunition crate or a rifle case. They couldn't even get a coffin in time. I think Lincoln would have preferred that kind of roughly hewn coffin of a rail splitter, which he was, working with wood and tools throughout his youth. Lincoln rejected the fineries in life. He didn't care about expensive things. He didn't care about fine furniture or china or bric-a-bac or personal possessions. His wardrobe was small, and he didn't care about fine clothing. Uh, Lincoln was a simple man with very simple tastes. And I think he would have been mortified to learn that his coffin cost over $1,500 when the, when the pay of a private in the Union Army was $13 a month. When Lincoln's body was drawn through the streets of New York City in a hearse drawn by 16 horses, he would have been embarrassed. That magnificent hearse was so elaborate, so fantastic, that it was like a small house. That hearse was probably about the size of the log cabin in which Lincoln was born. I, uh, Lincoln did not like to be worshipped. He didn't like to live as a president above the people. Uh, he believed he was just a simple man who temporarily had been awarded this great position. And I think Lincoln would have been quite embarrassed at these lavish nationwide tributes. And it just isn't the man he was. Right. And yet it was evidently what our nation needed to do to try to come to terms with this inexplicable grief. The book is called, again, Bloody Crimes, The Chase for Jefferson Davis and the Death Pageant for Lincoln's Corpse. It is published by William Morrill. It includes remarkable photographs from the time and the author, James Swanson. James Swanson, thank you so much for joining me once again on The Morning Show. It was my honor to speak with you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back.